This morning to a couple of places, two passages I want you to turn to, Isaiah chapter 59 and Ephesians chapter 6. Isaiah 59 and Ephesians 6, we'll take a look at some other scriptures and uh, they'll be up on the screen if you, uh, if you want to turn to those when I mention them, that's great, otherwise you can just read along up on the screen. Today is the last in a series called Love Your Neighbor that we started a few weeks back um, I'm so thankful for Pastor Art and uh, Pastor Patrick, who preached the last couple of Sundays. I, I got to listen to both of those messages. Uh, I actually called Pastor Art, and I was like, great, dude, thank you for that. I have to follow that kind of energy. Does he have energy or what? Oh, my goodness. That guy, he is a live wire. Um, but I love his heart for the Lord and his passion for people. And uh, we look forward to everything God's going to do through the Bridge Buena Park uh, he called me, by the way, or texted me, rather, um, later that day, and he said, hey, I want to let you know, first of all, thank you for the opportunity to, to share with your congregation. Um, it's, it's a privilege to be able to preach in another church. Uh, I got to experience that again in Haiti, got to preach in a couple of churches there, and uh, it's, it's really a privilege to present and bring the Word of God to a people that are not under your direct care. And I know that Pastor Art really stewarded and, and appreciated that opportunity, but he texted me later that day and he says, hey, I just want to let you know, we just had our largest night ever at the Bridge Buena Park. And, uh, and he, he believed that it was because of his faithfulness even being here on that Sunday morning. So thank God for that. Uh, love your neighbor. We've talked about a lot of different things. Of course, kicking it off, talking about the Good Samaritan and the story that Jesus shared when questioned about uh, what should I do to be saved? And the, the response to that expert of the law, law was, well, what do you say the law says? Well, how do you interpret it? And he says, well, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And he gave the technically correct biblical answer. And Jesus said, absolutely, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But then the man, wanting to justify himself, wanting to justify his behavior and, and his lifestyle and the way that he walked that out, asked this question, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Now, he was not asking so he could immediately go out and bless his neighbor. I've, I've mentioned this before. He was asking because he wanted to know who was excluded. Who was left out from that? Who do I not have to love? And then Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan, and in that story eliminated any question as to whether or not there was someone who could get it left out. He told an extreme story using extreme examples of people who shouldn't have loved each other and people who should have loved each other that didn't, those that shouldn't have and did, and eliminated any questions. And at the end of that, that man, Jesus says to that man, now you go do likewise. Go love in that same kind of way. And so we've looked at different aspects of that. But I want to close this series today um, with something that the Lord's been impressing on my heart really for the last couple of days. And it kind of came as a bit of a curveball to me. But I feel like it's a, uh, it's a poignant, it's an appropriate way to end the series. By the way, that curveball reference was for all you Dodgers fans out there. Come on, I'm not, a, I'm not a baseball fan much, but that was, that was pretty cool. I was actually watching the score, so pretty amazing. Still don't want to talk about football, because my team is not doing great, so we'll just leave it at that. Here's the thing, loving your neighbor is not just about charity. 
we can get into this mindset in the, in the midst of the church that loving my neighbor is, is about charity. It's about giving. It's about caring for people. And, and indeed, it is. Yes, we're called to care for people's needs. Absolutely. Scripture is clear about that. Uh, we're called to give. Yeah, absolutely. God calls us to give, to be generous. And there's examples of scriptures both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that say, yeah, we're, we need to give out of the resource and the blessing that God has given us to take care of people, to minister to each other. We see it in the book of Acts, that they gave, everyone gave as they had need, and they cared for each other as the body of Christ. And yes, we're supposed to extend our hearts and hands to those who are marginalized and broken. Absolutely. Those things are an absolute critical part of who we are as the body of Christ. But, but I think what's happened is there's been a shift in the modern church where we think that if we're doing those things that we're fulfilling the whole gospel. And the reality is we end up missing out on probably what is the most important part of loving your neighbor. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. See, I believe this. Your neighbor's greatest need is this. Your neighbor needs you to fight. Your neighbor needs you to fight. And your neighbor doesn't need you to fight with them. I shared a couple of stories out of my own personal experience. You can listen to those on the recordings from a few weeks ago. Your neighbor doesn't need you to fight with them. Your neighbor needs you to fight for them. In fact, you might be the only person in your neighbor's life who is, who, who is going to battle for them. And I want to talk about what that battle looks like and how we need to fight for our neighbors. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 through 38, we always look to Jesus for our cues. How was it that Jesus went to bat for people, for us? Matthew 9, 35 through 38, reading out of the New Living Translation, says this. Jesus traveled through all the towns and the villages of that area, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness, which praise the Lord for that. You see that every kind, not some every kind of illness and disease. And it says that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to the disciples, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest and ask him to send more workers into the fields. If you've been in church for any amount of time, short or long, you've probably heard this passage quoted at some point. We need more workers in the field. But I've got to tell you, it's not just about any kind of worker. God's looking for the right kind of worker. And, he, and, and the clue he gives us here is this. He had compassion on those who were confused and helpless. He had compassion on the people who were lost. That compassion was not a feeling sorry for. That compassion was not a, wow, I recognize the condition of your life, man, and that's, I really feel bad for you. That's too bad. And then I continue with my day. That compassion was not just a, a head knowledge or an understanding. That compassion was an, a, an aching of his heart. And if you translate that word from the Greek, it just it means that his guts hurt. He felt their pain. It wasn't sympathy, it was an empathy for those who were lost. And he saw the crowds and he hurt on the inside for those who were confused and helpless. He recognized that they had problems in their lives 
that they could not fix by themselves. Anyone relate to that? Any of you have any, ever have any problems that you can't fix by yourself? All right, some of you are confused. We should just all, just raise your hand. All right, there we go. We've all been there. In fact, Jesus looked at us and he had compassion on us because we were confused and helpless and broken in our sin. And it was that compassion that compelled him to do something. In fact, it was that compassion that compelled him to step out of heaven and come to earth, to come and, 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 and sacrifice his life. It was that compassion. Hebrew says it that, this way. It was the joy, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. We were that joy. We are that joy. And the compassion he has for us drove him to that place. It was for these very same people that Jesus came to earth to seek and save that which is lost, which is what the Word of God tells us, that he came to seek and save that which was lost, both then in that time and those people that he was laying his eyeballs on, that he was looking at, but also for us, that we were lost. The Bible also tells us that he came, Jesus' own words, that he came to testify to the truth. To came, he came to testify to the truth. We've mentioned before, and I love this passage out of John 10.10. 10. It's kind of our, our cornerstone passage for our church. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. You see, Jesus looked at people, and he saw people that were harassed by the enemy, people who, where the enemy was coming to rob them of everything good, to steal from them the things that God had deposited and shaped them and created them to be. And Jesus said, I'm not okay with this. So I'm going to come so I can give a kind of life that they can't attain in their own strength, in their own life, in their, in their, own, uh, their own ability. I want to come and give this kind of life. Lest we start thinking that this is just a New Testament concept, there's a passage in Isaiah 59 uh, that's going to lead us into Ephesians 6 this morning that I love this and I love the, the completeness of the perspective of God when it comes to his people, his creation. You know, there's never been a time in creation that God was, did not have a heart of compassion. There was times where he was frustrated, the children of Israel walking in obedient, disobedience, and he's going, driving me crazy, right? If you're a parent, you understand that. You love your kids, but sometimes you're like, you are driving me nuts right now. But God's heart was always that there would be this reconciliation. So in Isaiah 59, verse 15 through 17, we see this. Yes, truth is gone, and anyone who renounces evil is attacked. Let me stop there for a second. What did Jesus come to do? He came to testify to the truth. He came to testify to the truth, so there's a fulfillment of Scripture here. Yes, truth is gone, and anyone who renounces evil is attacked. The Lord looked and was displeased to find any find there was no justice. He was amazed to see that no one intervened to help the oppressed. So he himself stepped in to save them with his strong arm and his justice sustained them. He put on righteousness as his body armor and placed the helmet of salvation on his head. He clothed himself with a robe of vengeance and wrapped himself in a cloak of divine passion. Isn't that awesome? Okay. Isn't that awesome? 
I read that and I was like, oh my goodness, Ephesians 6 exists in Isaiah 59. And I'd honestly never seen that before. That God looked down from heaven and he saw that truth was lacking. And those who stood for the truth were, were attacked. Does that sound like today? Come on. If that's not today, I don't know what is. The reality is, is that more things, the more things change, the more they stay the same. That truth is under attack and those who would stand against, for the truth and against evil are attacked, are attacked, they're under attack. The Lord looked and he was displeased. He saw, you know what, there's no solution. There's no answer to this problem. And so he stepped in. And when he stepped in, his name was Jesus. And he brought that strong arm of salvation and justice. And I love that he put on righteousness as his body armor and placed the helmet of salvation on his head. We're going to talk about that more in a second. He clothed himself with a robe of vengeance and wrapped himself in a cloak of divine passion. Why? For himself? Be like, I'm so amazing. Look at me. Look how awesome I am. No. Why did he wrap himself and clothe himself in these things? For us. That passion that Jesus carried with him turned into compassion for people. It's why he came. So let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through 12. Paul writing here to the church in Ephesus. And he says here a final word to them. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the enemy or the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world and evil spirits in the heavenly places. This is the real battle. How do we love our neighbor? We fight for them. We recognize that there is a battle going on in the heavenly realms where the enemy is pursuing them, seeking to steal, kill, to devour, to tear them apart. And that we have the opportunity because we are clothed with righteousness, because we bear a helmet of salvation. We're going to talk more about the armor of God in just a second. But God has called us. As workers in that field, and I think we get this picture like, okay, Lord, give me my, you know, my instrument, my sickle or whatever it is. I'm going to go out in the field and just kind of work in the field. This is not a passive endeavor. That when he calls us to work in the field, he's calling us to battle. He's calling us to fight for those in our community. He's calling us to look with his eyes and see people the way that he sees them as helpless and in fear, and lost, and confused, and harassed. I'm describing your neighbors. I'm describing the people who live around you. I'm describing the people you work with. I'm describing the people who, who, who are on your kids' sports teams. Could even be that I might be describing some of you. This is what God sees, and he goes, I'm not okay with this. I'm not okay with the condition of mankind. I'm not okay with the way things are going. And so we need to do something. And he sent Jesus, and then Jesus called us. And he says, now you fight. You get into the battle. 
and you start fighting the fight that matters the most for your neighbor. And here's the thing about it. I can give someone a piece of clothing or an article or some food, and they'll be appreciative of it, of it and it'll make me feel good, right? Come on. It'll make me feel good. But if I'm not praying for them, it's an empty gift. It's not the thing they need the most. What they need the most is for me to go to battle for them. It was Peter and John walking down the road and, and the crippled man saying, I need money. And, and they go, we don't have money. But you need something else more than you need money. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. They went to battle for that man and his life was transformed. Jesus calls us to the same so three things I want to talk about today. How do we bring the fight to our community so that we love our neighbors the way God's called us to love our neighbors? The very first thing is this. You have to be equipped. You have to be equipped because you cannot go into battle if you are not ready to go into battle. You will get beat up. You will get tore up or you'll just be ineffective. And so you have to be equipped. Continuing in Ephesians 6, verse 13 through 17. Therefore, put on every piece of God, God's armor so that you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will still be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness for shoes put on the peace that comes from the good news of the gospel so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on, the sal uh, on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Here's what I want to do. I want to do a quick rundown of what these are, we're not going to get too in-depth. In fact, I'm, I'm looking at it in the new year, after, after Christmas, after the new year. I actually want to do a, a series on the armor of God, and we'll push more deeply into what, what each of these are uh, for us. So look for that coming this, this next year, right? The armor of God, the belt of truth, this, this for the Roman soldier who Jesus would have been referencing I mean, Paul, rather, would have been referencing because the, that was the predominant army of the day. And so he used pictures or analogies that people would have understood. The belt of truth that for the Roman soldier, they had a belt that they estimate was between four and six inches thick. It was a leather, I mean, wide. It was a leather belt, and it was, it was a strong belt. And it was the belt that held everything together. If the Roman soldier did not have a belt, everything else would fall apart. It was the belt that held the breastplate in place. It was the, the belt that held the, uh, the sword. It was the belt uh, that, that held the tunic in place so that the soldier was mobile and agile and could move. It was this, this, this key part of the armor. The belt of truth. Why? Why truth? Well, going back to Isaiah 15, right, 59, right? God says, truth is gone. Truth has gone out the window. We have an absolute disregard for the truth. We don't care about what's true anymore. We care about what feels good. We'll compromise based on popular opinion. If enough people say something is a certain way, well, I guess that's the way it is. And forget about what truth is. Truth is critical for us. If we do not put on truth like a belt, everything else 
will unravel because my heart will be open to hear any other argument. And so I have to stand in truth. And so the question for us is this, are we people of truth? Do we fight for truth? And I'm not just talking about don't lie. By the way, don't lie. (laughs) But it's not just that. See, because the enemy is subtle in the way that he wants to get us away from the truth. Well, that's that's okay. One of the reasons I addressed Halloween this morning, because I, I read an article this week that kind of took the other side and was like this idea that churches that engage in, 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 in Halloween festivities are basically worshiping the devil. And I was like, whoa, 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 time out. Let's talk about the truth of why we're doing what we're doing. If we have to address it, right? Because then, then the lies get dispelled. And so are you a person of truth? Is character integrity, and, and, are you a person of character and integrity? And are, is your life rooted in the word of God? Does everything come back in your life to what, what does God's word say about it? What does Jesus have to say about it? Because I've got to tell you, I've got a lot of opinions, and so do you. Amen? You've got a lot of opinions. I've got a lot of opinions. People driving past our church on Sunday morning, they've got opinions. People in this community have opinions. Everyone's got an opinion. But here's the thing. If it doesn't line up with the Word of God, it's not truth. And if it's not truth, it's a lie. So are we people who are rooted in God's word? John 8, 44, Jesus said this, that Satan is a liar and he is the father of lies. And if he can unravel us with a lie, he's got us, everything else after that becomes ineffective. He goes on and talks about the breastplate or the the body armor. And I actually like the New Living Translation, the way that it says this, not just the breastplate, because like we don't. We don't get, like, breastplate. Like, I guess if I've been to enough Christmas plays and I see the Roman guard with the plastic breastplate and it's all, right, and you're like, that's funny. Um, but we don't understand. But we understand body armor. Sounds cooler, too. It was this, this piece of equipment that protected the vital organs, and it would have covered not just the front but the back as well. Today we have Kevlar vests, Right? And you see a, a police officer and, you know, they're walking around and there's kind of like chest is all bulky and bulged out. And it's, yeah, they've been in the gym, but they're also wearing a Kevlar vest, a bulletproof vest that is going to protect. You don't wear Kevlar on your arms or on your legs. It's your, 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 your breast and, and your chest and, and, and your back. Why? Because it protects the parts of your body. If they were damaged, you would die. And so you protect the vital parts of who you are. The, the breastplate or the body armor of righteousness. And here's, here's the awesome thing, that this righteousness is not from you. It's not from you. We are clothed in righteousness. Ephesians 4.24 talks about that. Paul says that we put on the new self, created to be like God in his righteousness, that God has given us a righteousness not of ourselves but from him, right, so that none could boast. And so every day that I get up, I say, Lord, I'm putting on your righteousness over the critical and vital parts of my life, those, those areas of my life that are most sensitive to damage, to critical damage, to, to, to damage that will rob me of my life. 
And the enemy say, well, you're not righteous. And the word of God in opposition to that would say, no, 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 I'm clothed in righteousness. And I bear the breastplate and the body armor of righteousness, not because I'm so amazing, but because God's so amazing. And this is what he's given me. And we take our stand. It's a daily reminder that Jesus is the source of my righteousness, not me. Isn't that good? Isn't that a great reminder for us? He goes on to say this, our feet need to be fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Shoes of the gospel. Why? Because the gospel compels us. It's the good news that Jesus responds to from the Father in Isaiah 59 where God says, I'm not okay with this. We need to do something. And Jesus says, I'll go. Why? Because his feet were ready to bring the good news to us. Always prepared, always ready to go. Paul writes in Colossians that the gospel compels us. It compels us. It drives us forward. Are you being driven forward by the gospel of Jesus Christ, by the good news? Are you driven to go into your community, to share with people around you? Are you ready to deploy whenever and wherever you're needed? I love watching like war action movies, especially like watching things about the Navy SEALs, right? If you ever watch any Navy SEAL movie, and there's a whole bunch of them, there's always a scene in the movie where like they're hanging out with their family. They're either on the beach or at a barbecue. I don't know what it is about Navy SEALs. They're always at the bar- barbecuing at the, or at the beach, right, with their family, and they're hanging out, and then they have like the phone rings, or it used to be like their beeper goes off, and they all kind of look at it at the same time, and there's just this kind of knowing everyone knows they got to go, and they kiss their wives, and they kiss their kids, and, and they head out for war, ready to deploy at a moment's notice, ready to go. No announcement on TV, no press release, right? Oh, we love that in the church. We like to let people know, hey, look at the good that I'm doing over here. And God says, no, 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 just go. Be like a Navy SEAL under cover of darkness and just go do the work I've called you to. Be ready to deploy. John 14, 27, Jesus said, peace stands in the place, in the face of fear and trouble. When he says this, my, my peace I give to you. Don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm giving you my peace, and it's that peace that will cause you to move forward. He he goes on to talk about the shield of faith. Why do you need a shield? Because you are a target. Sorry if you didn't know that coming in this morning, but you are a target. The second that your heart starts turning towards Jesus, it's not even the point of salvation. The minute, the second your heart starts turning away from the things of this world and going your own way and turning to Jesus, you become a target for the enemy, and he is ready to take you out. He's not okay with you following Jesus. And so he says, take up the shield of faith, and it's with this shield that you can extinguish and defend yourself against the arrows, the fiery darts of the enemy. Here's the thing about the bow and arrow. It changed the battlefield. When the bow and arrow came, was invented, 
I don't, I don't have all kinds of dates and stuff for you. But here's what I know. Before that battle was face to face, you had to be an arm's length of someone to battle them. The bow and arrow made it possible for the enemy to start hitting their adversary from a distance. So it, was, it wasn't face to face. And it could either be very accurate, right? You think of like the, 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 the bow and the arrow and was it William Tell and the apple and all of that, right? Or indiscriminate. I was watching uh, Lord of the Rings with my, my boys the other day and right, love those movies. Love the battle scenes and yeah, it's gross and all of that, but there's just uh, something about it, and, right? And you have the elves. Come on, any Lord of the Rings fans? All right. Yeah. Jim? No, not so much. All right. Um, <laughs> in the first Lord of the Rings movie, and they're, they're, they're at Helm's Gate, and they're having this battle, and it's like everything's turning the wrong way, and the elves turn, show up on the hillside, and they're all glimmering, and they have these huge bows, and, right? And they draw back, and there's this, this volley of arrows that come, and you're like, oh, it's incredible. The bow and arrow changed the way that a battle was fought because you could start taking out an enemy from a distance and it would be this indiscriminate fire. It would just be like thousands of arrows unleashed at the same time and some of them would hit and some of them wouldn't. And that's the enemy's tact against the church. He's just just constantly firing arrows at us, hoping that, that something sticks, literally. And the thing about the arrow is... It, quite often it would kill someone, but, but more often than not, it would just maim them. It would hit them in the leg or in an arm, and it would just take them out of the battle. It wouldn't kill them right away. It left them vulnerable for other enemies to come in and, and get closer. And because you were now wounded, you were more susceptible to attack. And the thing with an arrow was if your focus was in the battle right here, you wouldn't see the arrow coming. This is the tactic of the enemy. He's going, I'm going to unleash a volley of fire against you from the pit of hell, hoping that something sticks, hoping that you get injured in some way that it will just make you ineffective. It will just remove you from the battle. It will just stop you from forward progress. And so God says, take up the shield of faith. The shield of faith that allows you to take your stand and says, you know what, it doesn't matter what the enemy fires at me, I can hold that shield in place and it's going to block those arrows, it's going to stop them from getting through. Here's what I love about the shield, a couple of things. First is this, the shield was always emblazoned with the identity, not of the soldier, but of the king. The shield was always emblazoned, whether it was painted or it was like embossed into the metal, but it always bore the identity of the king so that the enemy was reminded who they were fighting. Come on, that's good, right? That when I bring up the shield of faith, it's not my faith. I'm reminding the enemy of who I belong to. I'm a son. I'm a daughter of the king. Take a look at my shield, enemy. That's my dad. That's my Lord. That's my king. That's who you're really up against. The Bible says he must flee. He must flee. It was kind of cool with the Roman army in that, that era. They devised a system by which they could interlock their shields together. And they actually 
created something called the turtle or the tortoise, where these soldiers would all come together and they would link their shields together and they would cover over the top. It was like the first iteration of the tank. Because they would get in lockstep with each other, all of these shields locked together, and they would start advancing on the enemy, and they would have the, the, their, their spears sticking out of the front. So there's guys holding spears, there's guys holding shields in place, and they would advance on the enemy. And in that day, there was nothing the enemy could do to stand against it. When we bring our shields of faith together and we interlock them together, as we take our stand as the body of Christ... That defensive posture that we have against the enemy is magnified, and our faith is established and built, and nothing the enemy throws at us can bring us down. I love that picture. We have to stand with each other. The helmet of salvation. Jesus put on the helmet of salvation in Isaiah 59. He calls us to do the same thing. We have to protect our mind, the battlefield of our mind that the enemy will try and convince you that you're something that you're not. And salvation covers my mind. I don't think the same way I used to think. 1 Thessalonians 5.8 says this, Let us who live in the light be clear-headed, protected by the armor of faith and love, and wearing as our helmet the confidence of our salvation. The enemy wants to mess with your mind. He wants to meddle with your thought life. He wants to throw you off track and get you thinking about things that you don't need to be thinking about. He wants to bring into question your confidence, the confidence of your salvation. So we put on the helmet of salvation just as Jesus did to remind us that my mind is protected by the Lord, that Jesus secured for me a salvation that is eternal and it's undeniable, it's unquestionable. And even though we have an accuser that stands before the throne of God saying, well, what about him and what about her? And God says, no, no, check out the helmet. They got the helmet, so back off that we put on the helmet of salvation. I love that Paul actually says to us that we no longer consider anyone from a human point of view because our minds have been changed and our perspective. See, our brain interprets what we see, and if we're seeing things in the flesh, we're not seeing things with a helmet of salvation. God calls us to see things in a different kind of way. And then finally, and really most importantly, is this, the sword of the Spirit. See, everything else that we've talked about really is a defensive weapon or a defensive item, right? You could say that the shield could be used, but it really was not an offensive weapon. It's the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God that He puts in our hand and He puts in our mouth and He hides in our heart and He he commits to our memory and He says, now this is where you bring the fight to the enemy. It's with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And when it comes to, to loving your neighbor, it's about declaring God's Word over them and speaking God's truth and allowing His Word to be the thing that drives back the darkness. Your charity, your good deeds are great, but if they are not led with the word of God, they're empty. They're empty. It's all about the word of God, and so we have to be a people of the word 
fully equipped, fully armored up, but we got to make sure we have the sword. And I got to tell you, when I go into battle, I don't want the little short sword. I want the big honking, like, right, gleaming blade, razor sharp, right? I don't want that enemy to get within like six feet of me, right? I'm imagining the muscles I would need to have to wield that kind of sword. Come on. I want that sword. I want that sword. Second thing is this. We need to identify the enemy and the battleground. We need to be equipped, but then we need to identify the enemy and the battleground. Military strategists never go into battle with first discerning and studying and understanding what kind of fight they're going into. It used to be that battles were just all fought the same way. And when you watch the movies like this, old battles, right? You get one group of people who line up in straight rows and they, they form ranks. And then you have another group and there's a big empty space between them. And then they just march out and hope they live, right? In the Civil War, they did the same thing, but now they did it with guns. And it was just, it was a war of atrophy. It was just like whoever just lasts the longest wins, and then there was a shift in strategy and, and, and technique and the way that we fight battles. And uh, World War II really was a key for us because World War I, we realized digging a trench and then just fighting each other from a trench, just, it's just foolishness. It doesn't work. And so World War II tactics started coming in, understanding the, 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 the theater of, of battle that they were in, whether it was the Pacific or, or North Africa or Europe, whether it was the summer or the winter, and all of these things came into play. Right up until the end of World War II, there was a battle, it was called the Battle of the Bulge. It was the last major offensive in Europe before uh, the fall of the Nazis. And that battle took the... Allied forces by surprise, they didn't realize that the enemy still had the kind of strength they did. And it was the middle of the winter, and their supply lines were cut off. And it was, it was a horrible battle. In fact, in, in the European theater of, of, of battle, it was the, the largest single loss of life in one battle throughout the entire war. And it was mainly because they went into that battle unprepared. They hadn't identified their enemy I mean, they knew the enemy was the Germans, it was the Nazis, but they hadn't identified the strength of their enemy and the position of their enemy and the, the enemy's resolve to fight. And they didn't identify their battlegrounds. They didn't understand that it was winter and, and, and that, well, they knew it was winter, but they didn't understand the effect that the winter was going to have. And they thought, hey, we're at the end of the war, we're going to be able to go in and just kind of quickly take care of this. And it ended up being a months-long battle where soldiers weren't just dying because of gunshot wounds they were dying because they were freezing in the same way for us if we don't understand who our enemy is and we don't understand our battlefield we're going to be left exposed we're going to be left in a place where we can't go to bat and fight for our neighbor because we're going to be trying to just protecting ourselves always in a defensive posture. We have to know who we're engaging with. So in Ephesians 6.12, it says, we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. That's our battleground. That's our 
battleground. And that is our enemy. It's not what we see. It's what we can't see. When you go, well, that's not fair, right? But wait a minute, I've got armor. And I've got a helmet of salvation that causes me to see things through God's eyes, not through my own eyes. The Holy Spirit gives me discernment where I don't have to see with my physical eyes. The eyes of my heart go, whoa, 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 something's not right here. Something's way off. Let me ask you this question. And I want you to, to ponder this, not just today, but as you go out of this place today. When you look at your community, what do you see? What do you see? Jesus looked across a crowd there were just people, there were just people hanging out on a hillside. But what he saw was people that were confused and helpless and harassed, who were like sheep without a shepherd. Why, why, did he, why, why was he able to see that? Because they were all like bumping into each other and like, oh, I'm so confused, I don't know where. No, right? He saw something in the spirit. He saw the battleground, he saw the enemy, and he saw that they were being attacked. And he saw things from a different perspective. When you look at your community, what do you see? What do you see? I said this before, and I, it's always worth saying again. People are not the enemy. People are not the enemy. People are not the enemy. Why is that so important for us to know? Because the lie of the enemy, his primary lie is this, that person's your enemy. Right? And I got to tell you, it's so easy to fall for it. Yeah, they are. Man, that guy, that guy's a jerk. I can't believe him, the way he talked to me. Right? Or, or tell you what, when it comes to my family... Right, you've heard this, like, oh, you mess with me, that's one thing. But you mess with my, my wife or my kids, it's on. And so we'll believe the lie because it's being perpetrated against someone else. People are never the enemy. The people in your home are not the enemy. The people in your neighborhood are not the enemy. The person in, in your apartment complex who plows their, plays their music really loud, right, is not the enemy, the enemy is the enemy, and the battleground that we engage in is not one of words against people. It's against taking our heavenly language, our heavenly authority, and bringing the fight to the battleground where it matters most. So we fight for our neighbor, not against our neighbor. When we were in Haiti, our team was in Haiti, the church that, that we did a, a pastor's conference at, um, was in, it's just outside of Port-au-Prince. It was kind of, there's a, a valley, there's just a big flat area. Um, and, and this church had, had been established in this area. The pastor uh, had said, you know, there was no other churches in this region. And so I wanted to start a, a church here. And, uh, and as we were driving in, he's sharing with us, um, and now you're going to understand, we're in the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. Like, like, you can't imagine the poverty. Like, you, you just can't. If you want to know more about it, ask Tom or, or Brian or Robert. Like, like, if you've never been there before and you're trying to describe it, I asked Tom at one point in the trip, I was like, bro, is there anything I could have said or anything we could have done to prepare you? And he was like, there's nothing. 
There's nothing you could have said. There's nothing you could have done. No picture you could have showed me that could have prepared me for what we encountered. Because it's so pervasive. It's, ever, it's not like there's a poor part of Haiti. It's just poor everywhere. Everywhere. And so you go into a place like that and you go, well, that's a need and that's a need and that's a need. And there's orphans and there's people who are hungry and there's a home that's falling apart and there's another one and another one. And the need is literally everywhere. We go into this area where this, this pastor and he says, these, now we're thinking this is already bad. And he goes, yeah, I wanted to start a church here because there are 81 voodoo uh, altars and voodoo uh, uh, sacred sites in this region, but no churches. Okay, let, let that sink in for a second. We're driving to the church, which, by the way, you saw in the, in the video that we, we sent. Um, that church was a metal roof building, um, and its building is a, a, an exaggeration. It's a lean-to. They use sticks, like logs, to hold up this metal roof, and there's kind of a half wall and, uh, and a dirt floor. That was the church. We're driving into this church, and he's telling us, we are literally surrounded with voodoo worship sites. We drive right past. I'm looking over to my left. I'm going, wait a second. And he goes, yeah, that's, that's a voodoo altar. It's a sacrificial altar. We don't have those in Glendora. <laughs> right? Come on. No, not out in public like that. And there's this awareness, you start teaching in a, a situation like this, and you, the, the, the darkness is palpable. It's, next time we go, just come join us. Don't let that scare you away. Greater is he that's in us, right? But you recognize, oh my goodness, there's a very real enemy, and he's right here. I want a moment of honesty and transparency. Is that all right? Right? My wife always gets nervous. She's like, oh no, what's he going to say? Um, <laughs> I, I wasn't here last Sunday. Um, and I was having some physical issues. But here's what the, the Lord has reminded me of. See, I preached more on this missions trip than I've ever preached on a single missions trip. And, and we stood and I got to preach in places where the darkness was overwhelming and we brought the word of God. We got to train pastors. I was blown away by the grace of God in my life because I was going, Lord, who am I to teach these pastors and leaders? And, and we sat there. We, we sat there for hours. And they were sitting not in comf comfortable chairs. They were sitting on wood school benches. And when I say, like, it wasn't like a nice wood platform that had been sanded. It was a plank this wide that they were sitting on, and, and we sat there for, for over three hours. And at one point, I said, hey, let's take a break. Let's, I said to our translator, the pastor, let's take a break and like give them a break. And so this was their break. They didn't get up. They didn't even stand up to stretch their legs. No, no joke. They, they sat there, and they sang a worship song, a cappella, and they said, okay, let's, let's keep going. And if I had preached for seven hours, they would have sat there for seven hours. Because the darkness is so pervasive, and they're going, we just need every bit of help we can get. Preached some other church, another church preached a bunch. And we got to the end of the trip, and I was like, Lord, this is awesome. 
and I let my guard down. And I have never experienced spiritual opposition like I did the next week. I came home, and, and I've got to be honest, there was a bit of pride in me at the end of that time of the preaching. Like, man, I, I did good. And I let my guard down, and the enemy hammered me. What I experienced last Sunday and the days before that were not physical, they were spiritual. Because the enemy wants to steal and kill and destroy, and it's not figurative, it's literal. And it's taken me a few days to recover. And I've got to tell you, my eyes have been opened to an aspect of spiritual warfare that I've not encountered before. But that's Haiti. And you can go, well, it's right there. And it's right there. We come to Glendora or Zuso, Covina and St. Demas and Laverne, and we drive up and down our streets. And I saw someone this morning walking down the street with a garbage bag picking up trash. You don't see that in Haiti. You see the opposite. Everyone's just throwing their, their trash. And it's everywhere. And I was like, Lord, this is a beautiful place. This is a beautiful city, right? These are clean homes and, 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 and wonderful people. And people are out on Glendora Avenue having, having breakfast at Ed's Place in the Village Vault and strolling up and down the street. And yeah, we've got issues here and there, but really, it's a really nice place. So, so let me ask you, when you look at your city, what do you see? Do you see like, oh, everyone's good, and so we go, oh, we can let our guard down a little bit. Everything's okay. Because the enemy that exists in Haiti is bringing the fight there is the very same one who's here in Glendora bringing the fight here. It just looks different. Why? Because the battleground's different, so he uses different tactics. Can I tell you what I see? I'm not really asking, I'm going to tell you anyway. <laughs> I see this, I see loneliness. A majority of Americans, when asked about what's the thing they struggle with the most, is this I'm lonely. I don't have any meaningful relationships in my life. I'm surrounded by people and no one knows me. I call it quiet desperation. No one, no one knows me. Loneliness. This, by the way, is especially true of men. Most men in America are chronically lonely. And that's not a condition that's a spiritual opposition. It's a lie of the enemy that says you're all alone. I see marriages and families being torn apart from the inside out. I see fear. Fill in the blank. Fear of my health failing. Fear of finances. Fear of losing my job. Fear of being afraid. <laughs> I see fear. A spirit of fear. I see a spirit of addiction. We are an addicted society. You might go, well, I'm not doing drugs. I'm not doing, drinking alcohol. How much TV did you watch this week? We are, in a, we are a hurting culture that is addicted because we want to numb the pain that God wants to bring healing to. And the enemy is satisfied saying, just numb it. And God goes, I don't want you to numb it. I want to bring healing and wholeness. So we, we're addicted 
and we feel okay about ourselves, but we're not okay with ourselves. That makes sense? I would say specifically in our communities, in an area of addiction, I think the two, two ones that I would say are primary, pornography and alcohol, because they can be done in secret. Pornography and alcohol. And I'm talking about not just the adults, I'm talking about our kids. I see a spirit of divisiveness in our community and even in the church. And if I can't beat you, I'll divide you. Every now and again, I get to go to a city council meeting and do the invocation. And love our city council, love the mayor, love uh, that they've been elected and a pray for our leaders. But I tell you, if you want to see a little picture, a little snapshot of divisiveness, those who attend our city council meetings here in Glendora specifically, the ones who show up are the ones who want to argue and have a, an ulterior motive. Now, hey, we all have our positions and things that we want to discuss, but what I've seen is not, not looking with human eyes. When I look with spiritual eyes, it's ugly. It's vindictive, it's personal, and it is not of the Lord. And it is alive and well. I see it in the church. And unfortunately, it's an area where the enemy is hammering us. We've got to bring the fight to the enemy. There's more. But let me ask you, what do you see? We have to know who we're fighting. Jesus even said when he was confronted with the demon-possessed man, he asked him, who are you? Not talking to the man, he addresses the enemy. And the demonic forces say, we are legion, for we are many. We've set up camp here. And in the name of Jesus, at his word, he cast them out into the pigs. And that man is set free. What do you see? And then finally is this, take your stand. Take your stand. You've been equipped for battle. You've identified the enemy. You know the battleground. Now do something with what you have. Therefore, put on every piece of God's, God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will be standing firm. Stand your ground. Have you taken a stand in your home? Have you taken a stand in your neighborhood? Or have you taken a stand? Come on. Have you taken a stand in the grocery store? It's easy to take your stand here. And we need to, right? We get built up here. But, but this isn't where we take our stand. We take our stand in the battle. We come here for some R&R &R and for refreshing and equipping, and then we go back out there. So, so the next time you're in Albertsons or at the meat counter at Vaughn's with, with Jay back there, right? Maybe you can have a little prayer meeting. Hey, bro, let's just take our stand right here real quick. Standing behind that person in front of you in line, and you recognize, man, there's something going on here. And you can ask, Holy Spirit, give me discernment right now. How should I pray for this person? And take your stand. Take your stand in prayer. Take the authority that's been given to you in the mighty name of Jesus and take your stand. Pray in the Spirit. 
man, I don't know what's happening right here, but Lord, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray with a prayer I don't even understand, but I'm going to trust that you know what's going on. And so I pray, and I'm like, okay, I'm not talking about making it weird, right? Oh, be in the, the line at Albertsons and just be like, right? Man. But take your stand. God, I don't know what's going on. Get in the habit as you see people, you're like, Lord, I don't know what's going on in that person's life, but you do. And I just pray right now that you would bring freedom. I pray that you bring wholeness. And don't be surprised that God starts showing you stuff about people that you couldn't possibly have known. And by the way, that's not so you can just go up to them and go, hey, here's what God showed me about you. More often than not, it's given to you as an equipping so that you can pray and take your stand because your neighbor needs you to fight for them because the enemy is trying to seek to kill and destroy. Worship. Roll down the windows, crank up the worship, and drive through the city and let the, just sing. Be that person. Because the truth of those words in worship drive back the darkness. And then finally the word. Speak and declare the word of God over your home, over your marriage, over your children, over their school, over your neighborhood, over your neighbor's house to the left and to the right and across the street. Bring the fight not to them, but bring the fight for them. And watch what God will do. Declare the word of God over your boss. Amen? And not, Lord, would you smite him down? No, that's not a good, right? <laughs> Pray for them, lift them up, declare the word of God in your school, at the sports field. Oh, we need Jesus at Little League. Amen? Fred and Jamie, amen? Right? We need Jesus out on these sports fields because, man, enemies winning the, the fight in a lot of those places. Speak the word of God, declare the word of God, and watch the enemy be driven back. How do we love our neighbor? We fight for them. Let's stand together. This is a bit of a drink from a fire hose this morning. It's a lot. We covered a lot of ground. I want to encourage you, go this week, read Ephesians 6. Read Isaiah 59. I tell you what, the zeal of God in Isaiah is amazing. And the things that Isaiah prophesies, talking about what's going to come, what's about to happen, what Jesus is going to usher in, it will blow your mind in a great, good way. Get into the word. Understand your armor. Like I said, we're going we're gonna to cover some of this in more detail in the new year. But don't wait. Don't wait. For, like Barry will preach on it next year and I'll hear it then. How about this? By the time we get to that series, that we're also equipped that these, the rest of these seats are filled with people who don't know because we've been putting on our armor and saying, God, let's take the fight to the enemy. That sound good? I'd love it if I preached that sermon and you, with that series and you guys were like, oh, I already knew that. I'd love that. Let's pray. Father God, we take our stand as children 
of the Most High God, as sons and daughters, as those who've been saved, who've been clothed in righteousness. And God, I pray that as as a body that we would equip ourselves with the armor of God. And Lord, I I thank you that it's not just a one-time thing, that it's a daily thing. And Lord, even I know in my life, I have to stop during the day and go, wait, have I dropped some of my armor along the way? That we would be equipped and prepared to bring the fight to the enemy. And that we would fight the enemy and not our neighbors. That we would love our neighbors and that we would care about them so much that we would go to war for them. God, they may never even know it, this side of heaven. Give us that kind of passion, that kind of zeal, that kind of heart for our city. In Jesus' name, amen. As we lift this last song up to the Lord, let's lift it up in unity as a prayer for the lost. And as we sing it, let's sing it as a battle prayer that all, every tribe, every tongue, every nation will declare that he is Lord. Amen. And all the earth will shout your praise. Our hearts will cry. These bones will sing. Every tongue, Lord, that's our prayer, Lord, that they will declare.